It's Friday, December 18, 2020, and welcome to Asia Pacific Today. I'm Mike Ryan. A catastrophic bushfire burnt more than half of Queensland's Fraser Island, which is a World Heritage Site. Water bombing did not start until a month after the fire started. Today, we're joined by Councillor George Seymour, Mayor of the Fraser Coast Regional Council. Cybersecurity is a hot issue in the US and, in fact, globally. Businesses, whether small or big, are targeted by often state-run cyber criminals such as Russia, China and North Korea. And the cost to protect yourself and your business can be huge. Blake Christian joins us shortly to discuss this. Professor Mike Young from the Centre for Global Food and Resources believes Australia has lost its way on its water policy. A catastrophic bushfire burnt through more than half of Queensland's Fraser Island and was looming as an ecological disaster. It's the world's largest sand island. It's also known as Kigari. The bushfire was sparked by an illegal campfire in mid-October and burnt through about half the island, which is somewhere between 80 to 85,000 hectares. Councillor George Seymour is Mayor of the Fraser Coast Regional Council, which Fraser Island is part of the umbrella of that regional council. Fraser Island, by the way, is about 123 kilometres or 76 miles long and about 22 kilometres or 14 miles wide. It was inscribed as a World Heritage Site in 1992. George, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good day, Mike. How are you? Good. You live in a beautiful part of the world. It is. It's really, really special place. And Fraser Island's right up there in terms of the incredible environments here on the Fraser Coast. Just um, Fraser Island has been in the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, a beautiful island. Uh, just wondering, has there been adequate fire management on the island? Because there's been about two months of a wild, wild fire. In the US, they call it wildfires. Here we call it um, bushfires. Yeah, I don't think there was adequate management. There's going to be a very thorough review by the state government to look at the preparation, the management and the actual firefights. But I think quite clearly, if you have a fire that burns for two months, much of it uncontrollable and unmanaged, and then you're relying on rain to extinguish it, something has gone very, very wrong. It is an incredible natural environment, and over 80,000 hectares was burnt, about half the island of this World Heritage-listed natural wonderland. So clearly, lessons need to be learned for the future. I believe, uh, as it was coming out, that the reason why they didn't use the, as we would say in Australia, the U-Butte water tanker in Bundaberg, uh, was because they were hoping for rain. Now, is that stupid or is that just plain nuts? Um, Well, I think it's negligent. Um, You know, at the end of the firefight, they had sometimes 23 planes in the air. Mm -hmm. They were dropping over a million litres of water on the fire by the end. But they could have used a fraction of that, obviously, earlier uh, to extinguish it. So uh, it was monitored and monitored for weeks and weeks. Um, So clearly, you know, this review, I think, will be quite telling in terms of when they engage with the fire, because it wasn't fought for weeks and weeks. It was allowed to just run. Why do you think the delay? I mean, it's a World Heritage Site. Queensland and the federal government, uh, they've got to look after it. They've got to make sure this island's going to be around for, for thousands of years. 
and we just had i mean as you know the old the old saying as rome burnt nero fiddled um do you think that the election might have been a bit of a distraction or or that um uh, the premier just fiddled and just said oh well it'll go out I think it comes down to the management of the park and also the conditions. This fire started in a very, very remote area of the island, um, some places with no tracks at all, and maybe you can't send men and women down a single sandy track where they could get cut off behind the fire line. So it would have been a very dangerous to send people in. Um, but also there's a you know recognition that fire is an essential part of the Australian environment. Mm-hmm. Um, places need to burn. The problem with this fire is it burnt uncontrolled and unmanaged. So, um, you know, every square centimetre of Fraser Island has burnt at some stage mm. in the last 200 years, and it needs it to regenerate. But this fire was extreme in some cases. It was intense. And by allowing it to burn from about six weeks before they started fighting it, um, it was uncontrollable. And when, they, when Queensland Parks and Wildlife handed it over to Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, um, it was accepted that it wouldn't be put out in the absence of rain. So, um, you know, while, whilst the island does need fire, the national environment in Australia needs fire, it needs to be managed and controlled. You need to be able to put it out when you want to. Can you tell us how the fire started? Yeah, the, it was an illegal campfire. An illegal campfire in a very remote part of the island started the fire in early October. Mm-hmm. Have and they... it, was put out, and it didn't get put out until early December. Have they been uh, brought to account? Have they been charged or has it just been sort of swept under the sand dune? As far as I know, nobody's been charged yet. I certainly hope they are able to find whoever did it because, you know, anybody can get to the island who's in that remote area knows the rules and knows they shouldn't have had a campfire. Can you imagine, though, if they had used a water bomber or aerial attack with the, with, uh, the, the fire services, that small fire would have been put out pretty darn quickly and to leave it for six weeks i mean sure they're opening the uh fraser island at the moment but half of it's gone then you've got to wonder about the nutrients because they're fungi in the uh in the uh the sand that replenishes and helps with nutrients for the the scrub to grow has that been affected um yeah well all that will be examined i think i'll be over on the island later in this week to have a look at some of the areas i mean there are areas where I've seen it where it's gone through and it looks like a lunar landscape and there's other areas where the fire didn't go through with such intensity like the Valley of the Giants mm. and you look at it now and it's it's blooming you know there's green you know shoots coming out of the ashes so it's not like half of the island has been scorched the, it goes through in a mosaic fashion um, certain, but certainly um, I think you know they need to look really close at how they fire, fight fires when they first start because you know early October the 7th or 8th Mm. If they'd sent a few water bombers in then, I think it could have been handled much quicker, obviously, um, instead of waiting till it threatens townships and built infrastructure. Mm. Mm. What's important about Fraser Island is what's on the World Heritage Register. It's natural, it's cultural, and it's scientific mm. significance. You mentioned that the uh, management needs to be looked at. If you were managing the island, how would you change the management? Well, I think that engage with the Butchell Aboriginal Corporation, who has native title over it, get them to do cool burns in the winter and the dry period. Um, the island should be burnt. When Captain Cook went, sailed by in May 1770, what he writes in his diary is about multiple fires. 
the island was managed in a sustainable manner for millennia by the Bachelor people. So I'd bring that back. I'd also bring in fire breaks. It was also managed quite well by the commercial loggers. Uh, the commercial loggers are, you know, are, are no longer there uh, for environmental protection. But when they were there, there were roads, there was access way, and fires could be put out very quickly. There's questions to be asked about going back to, to way back when. And we have, um, I mean, look at the fires throughout Australia. Again, a similar situation, the, uh, the back burning, uh, which the Aboriginals had done for many, many thousands and thousands of years. And then we, uh, us white folk, decide to get in and say, no, no, we're going to put our own interpretation on this and we can see what happens. You've got this, uh, this magnificent island that we're entrusted to look after and uh, it starts to burn and we go, oh, Hmm. What do yeah. we do now? Yeah. So it's a bit sad, isn't it? The, yeah, the fuel load leading up to this fire on each hectare was enormous. Um, Happy Valley, which was the township that was saved uh, by a group of firefighters, its perimeter had not been burnt for 12 years. So there was no fire break there, which there should be for a, a township in, in a remote area like that. What about the delicate ecosystem and other species that have been affected? Yeah, it's. Um, I think... It's a bit too early to, to, to have done a full uh, review of the entire island, but if there are people over there right now examining the different sections, the different habitats. Um, you know, it's the only place in the world where there's purebred dingoes. So there's no crossbreeding of the dingoes. Mm. So it's incredibly significant habitat for so many different animals, um, and that'll need to be looked at really, really closely to make sure, you know, we haven't lost too much. Tell us about the now. That was the then. Thank goodness for... Um mother nature to uh, dump a hell of a lot of rain around Queensland, maybe a little too much at the moment, but tell us about the island now because it has reopened, uh, Mm. still a great ecosystem, still a beautiful place, and uh, again, you are in a magnificent part of Australia and the world, and so... Here's your, here's your elevator pitch to get us going yeah. to oh, Fraser yeah. Island. Fraser Island is an incredible place, whether you're staying at Kingfisher Bay Resort and drinking pina coladas by the pool oh, or the wilderness of the eastern uh, endless sand beach, um, you know, camping. It is an incredible place to lose yourself in nature. You know, giant, it's the only place, you know, where you have these giant rainforests, you know, growing in sand right up to the beach. So it's an incredibly special place um, with wilderness, crystal clear lakes and creeks, um, you know, shipwrecks and, uh, and um, Aboriginal culture. So it's an incredible place to be and it still is incredible. Um, you will see a rejuvenation, you know, of these places that have been burnt. And it's so easily accessible. Um, mm-hmm. you, can, you can fly to the area, you can drive, you could uh, park your car on Harvey Bay or anywhere along the Fraser Coast and get a ferry across. And um, we're very lucky. And uh, again, thank goodness Mother Nature decided to step in and dump water on it. Otherwise, you and I could be having a conversation of a different nature. That's right. Um, There was really no way to put the fire out without rain. Mm. It's a sand island, so water just leaks in. It was difficult. The water bombing just, you know, hits the tree canopy. So without that rain, that fantastic rain we got in the last few days, the fire could have kept burning past Christmas. How uh, indicative of Australia, you know, one minute we have bushfires, the next minute we have floods. I mean, aren't you lucky to be a mayor? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, we are, we're looking at the flood monitor right now. We're, you know, we've got this tidal inundation in some of our townships. So it's, yeah, it's a very um, wild 
country weather-wise. Yeah, fantastic. Lovely chatting to you, George. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful Christmas and um, uh, don't eat too much ham or turkey, and, uh, but do drink lots of uh, good Australian wine. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Hackers broke into the networks of the Treasury and Commerce Departments in the U.S., as part of a months-long global cyber espionage campaign, just days after the prominent cybersecurity firm FireEye said it had been breached in an attack that industry experts said bore the hallmarks of Russian tradecraft. In response to what may be a large-scale penetration of U.S. government agencies, the Department of Homeland Security's cybersecurity arm issued an emergency directive calling on all federal civilian agencies to scour their networks for compromises. Blake Christian from Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite, great to see you once again. Great to see you, Mike. Large businesses spend large sums to protect their systems. What cost for a medium-sized business to acquire a reasonable degree of protection against a breach of the data? Is it expensive or can you do it on the cheap? You know, a, a lot of it's education of your, your workforce um, so that they don't, you know, the most common still is, is phishing and uh, email breaches are, you know, 94% of, of the, the break-ins. And so uh, it's educating your employees to watch for these um, techniques. And uh, it's, you know, it's not too hard. They, they, they ride the wave of, you know, uh, the current events and, you know, the, like over here with the, the PPP loans, they might say, you know, here, click here for your PPP loan status, uh, sending that to a business. And it's like, oh, yeah, I applied for a PPP loan. They, they you know, try and deal with, um, you know, get you hooked by um, whatever the current events are. So you got to be very, very careful. But, uh, it, it generally, the budget for cybersecurity is usually about, ranges from about 0.2 to 0.9% uh, of, of gross revenues. Um, a a well-run company will, will have, and this is an amazing figure, $1,300 to $1,900 per employee oh. um, to full-time equivalent employee in order to um, apply towards your the cybersecurity effort, you know, and, and I mean that's just just totally inefficient dollars, you know. If you know if we didn't have this problem, that would would have gone into profits. So it's uh, it's a frustrating situation out there for sure, and it's doubling every year. Small business is very vulnerable to cyber theft. Do we know what type or size of business is most at risk? You know, the, it. it it still occurs more, you know, they, they go after the larger businesses right now um, because there's there's more at stake. They, you know, they do the ransomware routine where they'll lock up your data. You can't access it. And the, the cost of reconstructing that or, you know, uh, restructuring it because you have it up in the cloud can be real costly. So a lot of people will write the check. Um so it's, you know, it, it's <laughs> these things are prevalent, but they go after the bigger businesses because they can write the bigger checks. 
they, they still go for the smaller businesses, uh, depending on you know what information they can get to. Uh, they might even be able to embezzle money if they're if they're very sophisticated. What sort of information are thieves targeting in these businesses? You know, I mean, it's the you know, we've seen the very high profile situations where they've gone after the credit reporting bureaus and, you know, then they can go in there and get social security numbers, addresses, historical information on individuals. And from there they can go and create a, a phony profile and, and, you know, they can generate um, credit card applications, have those delivered somewhere else, or sometimes they'll have them delivered to your house and then they'll go and and steal it out of your uh, your post box. So um, there, there's all sorts of techniques that they they use, um, and it's they're getting more and more sophisticated for sure. What are the most important things a small business can do to protect the data? Well, you know we've we switched several years ago to um, a dual authentication. Uh, technique so that uh, you know you you'll you'll log into something, and then it will send a, a confirmation to your cell phone, and then you'll have to acknowledge that. So, you know, unless unless some hacker has your cell phone, also they're not going to get to that next step. I, I have to admit, it's it's you know it's annoying, it's cumbersome. Um, sometimes they don't come through. Uh, right or or I miss them and, and then I'm still not logged on. But I, I will tell you, you know, having seen uh, breaches at various companies, it's so disruptive. Uh, and I've also, you know, had had clients that have got hit with the ransomware, and it just completely shuts them down for two or three days. Um, and then they, you know, often the, the FBI will tell them just just pay it. Because it's uh, it's a low cost relative to um, you know what what could happen, but you know still that that hacker has accessed your data, so you still have some some additional issues. I recall when computers first came out, how it's going to save the world. Um, zzz, didn't really work that way. Uh, what are some examples of tax related identity theft? Yeah, I mean. The most the most common um, is is that they'll go in they'll, they'll take a, a high profile person um, or just anybody with some visit level of visibility they'll you know somebody that makes a lot of money they you know that the public could tell and they'll they'll know that they've made a lot of estimated tax payments etc and they'll front run the filing of your return so they'll you know, I mean, that our average taxpayer doesn't file a return till you know June, probably at the earliest, just because they have a lot of complexities. So a sophisticated hacker could could find their social security number, their home address, etc., file a return um, in January, uh, and they, they they you know they don't even know need to know how much estimated taxes you paid. They file something with very low taxable income, the IRS will calculate, you know, okay, there's the tax and they already have the data in their full file as to how much you paid in estimated taxes or W-2 withholdings. And voila, that uh, that hacker now gets 
a a refund check sent uh, some sometimes again to the mailbox of uh, the person they're ripping off, or in other cases they'll divert it to a new address, which is a little harder for them to do, and and then that that taxpayer will not know uh, until they go to file their return that um, that this person has done that. Uh, they'll try an e-file and they'll say, oh, you know, somebody else already filed the return that, uh, under your social security number. As soon as that happens, you know you're in a world of hurt. Mm. Um, so there, there's been, you know, situations where, and I, I, I was, I racking my brain, it wasn't a client, but it was a high profile person I was talking to and they had a million dollar refund coming and somebody, somebody did this. And, um, you know, it was uh, took a long time to unravel. Can you tell us what action the IRS, being ever so loving, is taking to help small businesses? Well, it, and again, um, the, the cure creates a lot of um, uh, extra work for, you know, the clients as well as us as, uh, as tax advisors. So... I have two, you know, two clients right now that have quarter of a million dollar refunds that are hung up because the IRS is insisting that they prove who they are and uh, before they'll mail out the check. And so they, there's a process where you have to get a, a PIN number from them and then enter it in and then add some other information. And so... Uh, one of, one of my clients, uh, he, you know, we, we've done this three times and he, he just never gets the letter, you know, cause they, they mail it, they physically mail it. The IRS doesn't use very much, uh, e- email, mm-hmm. uh, because they're, they're very concerned about, uh, um, uh, getting viruses. So, uh, they're, they're using a little bit more, but you know, up until recently they, they virtually never used email. Uh, so, so it's this clunky process of waiting for something in the mail. The mail system seems to be, you know, breaking down every time I deal with them over the last two months to get anything or send out anything. Mm. Uh, so, so these guys are sitting there, you know, not getting quarter million dollars. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Do you think they, uh, the IRS would send it out via a, a messenger or a courier? I mean, it's probably the easiest way instead of giving it to uh, um, um, you know, the uh, USA Postal Service because it just may not get there like all good postal services around the world. It can just disappear. So the courier, signed for, is probably the way to go. You know, that... And, and then they're gonna then they're gonna hold they're gonna play the uh, COVID card you know no we can't send any human beings out to you but mm. uh, I agree you know even if you if we paid for our own courier you know if it's a quarter of a million dollar refund let's uh, let's get that refund going I don't care how much it costs you wonder how uh, how enthusiastic that would be if it was the other way around they're after a a, um, a, a lump of money from you. They would uh, be very, very enthusiastic in uh, making sure that that got to them promptly, wouldn't they? Yeah, I, ju- I just wish we could impose the, the same penalties, penalties that they apply on us, right? Uh, it looks like Joe Biden will be uh, president. Um, uh, so makes next year very interesting when it comes to taxation and business. I'm sure the IRS will be um, really 
ramping up its services uh, because Joe will need to uh, collect a lot more back from companies and uh, individuals. Yeah, well, well, yep, and he'll he's already got his plan out there to increase taxes, so uh, that'll that'll be part of it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see if he increases uh, the the incidence of audits. Uh, the audit rate has has been falling steadily the last uh, decade. Um, so I would I wouldn't be surprised that that's you know that would be part of his plan to increase compliance and uh, collect more money that way also and further cost to uh, to the business too because you've got to make sure that your books are up to up to speed and uh, that you have a, a very good CPA there to to ensure that they don't take you away to spend some time at um, at Rikers or somewhere like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Look, if somebody wants to find out more about um, what you do and uh, want to talk to you about the uh, long, dark four years coming up under Joe, um, or just talk about tax, good things about tax, uh, how do they do that, Blake? Uh, you can reach me uh, at www.hcbt.com or uh, simply put uh, Blake Christian uh, CPA in your Google browser and I'll come up that way also. Unless your identity has been stolen and then <laughs> they might get somebody else. You never know. <laughs> That's right. Blake Christian, thank you very much. Great to see you. Australia's commitment to excellence in water policy began in 1994 with the decision to include water in national competition policy. States were required to have arrangements allowing water trading and a permanent cap was placed on water use at the Murray-Darling Basin. Those reforms played an important role in alleviating the worst effects of the millennium drought. Since then, we've had a national water initiative, Murray-Darling Basin plan, further drought, controversy over state rights, water rights, environmental flows, establishment and dismantling of commissions, and more reviews. Professor Mike Young believes that after groundbreaking and internationally recognised policy development, we may have lost our way on water policy. Uh, first of all, Professor, is it Professor or do we address you by something else now, sir? I'm officially actually an emeritus professor now, but I'm still just a professor, so, but, but more actively someone who's um, keen about water and, and very keen to get all the detail right if we can find a way to do it. And we're talking about Adelaide water, which is... I think the only water that can corrode a glass. Um, that's all changed, though, I think. It used to be like that. It had a reputation for having awful water. To, these days, it's all properly um, filtered. A lot of it actually comes from the River Murray over the ranges and down into Adelaide. And we have a desal plant we hardly ever use. That's right, but they had to spend the money somehow, so let's just build a desal plant. Well, it was it was built as insurance, and it was built around fear in the middle of the millennium drought when um, the River Murray had stopped flowing and the state was getting very, very worried that um, something might happen. So it decided to build a plant with a 50 gigalitre capacity, but designed to go to 100, and they ended up building 100 because of the um, financial crisis that, that emerged, and they were looking for shovel-ready projects. Mm. So we have 100 gigalitre plants sitting there, mm -hmm. waiting until we need it. Yeah, roll on the next drought. Uh, what's gone wrong with our water policy, and how do we fix it? 
Well, I think um, if you look through the eras that have happened, there was a fantastic period, as you described, when we started off um, unusually saying, let's make money out of water. Mm. And that was part of national competition policy. And Paul Keating and the people advising him identified that one of the things Australia had got wrong was essentially a structure for water management that was frozen and wasn't able to cope with change. And what we're still trying to do is to build mechanisms that enable change. And Keating said, for that water which we can use, let's make sure it goes to its highest and best use. And that's what we started the journey to do. And we said we'd live within our limits, set a limit, which was described as a cap. and said there'd be no more water issued to anybody, but you'd be able to trade it. And um, there were fines put in place to force the states to open up their markets or their actually water structures to trading. And that's where we started off in really 1996, 1997, got through to about 2000 and a group of us, including myself, were talking through what was needed. And we essentially decided to throw the entire water licensing system we had in the rubbish bin and build one that was designed to cope with essentially an ever-changing future. And that involved replacing the old water licences with a share of whatever water was available in the system and then a system where quantities are allocated continuously and as they're allocated, they can be banked Um, used or traded to somebody else. And so everybody's ended up with something that looks like your bank account with credits and debits. Um, When water's allocated to you in the same way as when you're paid, you actually have have money put into your bank account as a credit. In a water account, you get, get water credited to your account. As you use it, it's debited. Should you want to trade it, the long-term vision is like a BPAY. You can transfer it to anybody else. Taking water in all its aspects from planning to supply to markets, what do you consider to be the most pressing problem in Australia? Probably coping with change and continuous change. And it's not just climate change. Prices go up and down. Rainfall goes up and down massively. Um, everything's changing all the time. And the big shift, which has happened as a framework that enables us to manage change. The hardest part now is to, as we keep on trying to improve water policy, is to work out what's the role of water and what's the role of other things like taxation, um, regional development. Um, What's happened in much of regional Australia now is people want water policy to really be the prime instrument for actually delivering everything they aspire to. That's making it very hard to move forward. Has there been less interest in water policy and innovation in recent years, despite all of our problems of severe drought and so on? Uh, Yes, very, very much so. Because what happened um, through the millennium drought is we came up first with the National Water Initiative, which was a fantastic framework. In fact, you'd still have to give it almost 10 out of 10 if you're a professor saying this is very, very clever water policy. We then brought in a Water Act, um, set up a Murray-Darling Basin Authority, established the National Water Commission, um, and then went through to trying to roll out the Basin Plan. 
as we went into rolling out the basin plan, a lot of politics got involved. The original vision was for a strong, independent Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Politicians got involved and kept on trying to slow up change, avoid dealing with the difficult political issues. And um, as a result of that, we have lost that passion to get the detail right. The lucky bit is we still have one of the best systems in the world. In fact, I'd say it is the best system in the world. It's got no major cracks, lots of little things that need to be done that are all fixable. Does policy reform require leadership at the very top of government and large amounts of Mueller or funding? Um, Yes, it needs very strong leadership and particularly commitment to getting things right, which we did have and which we've lost now. We've shifted from a commitment to getting things right to a commitment to trying to make what we have work and to avoid any fundamental changes. Um, The exciting bit that's just happening now is I'm sensing a willingness to relook at things and to take the next bold step forward. You mentioned leadership lacking. Is that uh, all forms of government, local, uh, state and national? Yes, very much so. Um, There are pockets where people are very keen to do it, but there's also not a a clear dialogue that's occurring. People, I think, have got lost in the detail rather than the really big-picture reforms that are still needed. And one of them which people are talking about is how to deal with climate change and should we get into a drier regime. Um, And that's one bit at the moment. The framework says we ignore climate change and just assume there'll be variability and that, that we will have a fixed movement around an average a stationary model rather than one which is continuous if you build in continuous adaptive processes you actually wouldn't have what are called sustainable diversion limits instead you just have a sharing regime which was back in the national water initiative the national water initiative said we should have all entitlements defined as shares and have something like a moving average as it gets drier the size of the pools get smaller as as it gets wetter, they get bigger. Those sorts of concepts are not being talked about at the moment. Why is the Murray-Darling Basin so important? We hear this. I mean, it's, it's sometimes of the year. It's almost every every second day or ten times a day. Then it just sort of disappears. Why is it so important to good water outcomes? I think because it's it covers so much of Eastern Australia. It starts up in Queensland covers most of New South Wales, um, almost half of Victoria and half of South Australia. The bit of South Australia which relies on the Murray is huge. It includes the city of Adelaide. gets a very large proportion of its water resources from the River Murray. Um, so it's, it's, it's the food bowl. It also is a very, very important part of our environment and it has lots of tensions. It captures interstate politics um, catches debates between rural and urban Australia um, and is very, very much part of our psychic. And it's almost one of the things that defines Australia. What's Australia? Mm. Australia is really beaches and a coastal fringe and a thing called the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm. And then there's an outback. 
I think Australia is very proud of its outback. Um, the bit in the middle between the outback and and the coast is the Murray Darling. What's your thoughts on the? Um, it always comes to life. Uh, strangely enough, around elections, what's your thoughts on the uh, the the new? The, the, the uh, brand new, uh, the revised uh, Bradfield scheme, or just the original one? First of all, the original Bradfield scheme had nothing to do with the Murray-Darling. It was to take water from northern Australia and establish mm. a large irrigation system in, in um, western or northwestern Queensland and let the residual from that flow through to Lake Eyre. So it was the idea to take water and run it inland. Um, there are a couple of variants around that are called Bradfield schemes. They actually aren't. They're really proposals to divert water inland that currently flows out um, through to the Great Barrier Reef and to the east coast of Australia. Um, I've yet to see one that adds adds up, um, and I'll be interested to see it. I think this really gets to the heart of what's going on. Why do we use water and why do we want to make so much water in Australia do things that it does mm. and it's important to realise that Australia feeds um, three to four times its population, it depends how you do it, um, the mass um, but essentially we're using water to grow food for export and it's for making money so we have to think when we do any sort of Bradfield scheme is that the wisest use of Australia's resources and its money? Mm. Because if we can put it into developing hydrogen, improving our environment, educating our children, that is often a smarter decision because we are a victim of global prices. Mm. We are not growing food to feed Australia. We could halve the amount of water that's used in irrigation and still comfortably feed Australia. What do you think needs to happen to resolve some of the worst problems of the Murray-Darling Basin? The problems now are getting the balance right, getting environmental water right. I think we've spent way too much time talking about the maximum that can be used in a good year, which is what a sustainable diversion limit is. We haven't yet had a proper discussion around a minimum flows in the United Kingdom, they call these minimum flows hands-off flows, and I love that concept. Imagine going through the basin um, bit by bit and saying, what's the minimum flow that always has to be maintained? And in the times when that much water is not available, what do we do? And then how do we build a, a robust sharing system that copes with that? Mm. Once you've had that discussion, you then talk about priorities. Mm. So we have what we call high security water, which is really high priority water. Then there's another slab that's medium priority and then low priority. I think the size of the high security pool um, should adapt as we get dry. So we send a signal to everybody, including cities like Adelaide, that the system's getting drier. So if you want to keep on growing, you're going to have to get your water from elsewhere. Um, those sorts of structures are really important. Um, another one which I think is very important is expanding the Murray-Darling Basin plan and management system to cover all forms of water use. We 
really conceived the plan for the Murray-Darling focusing on the southern basin and put aside a lot of the detailed issues in the northern basin, which are more to do with capture of what are called overland flows. So what happens when it rains in northern parts of the basin is that there are no big dams, so the water used to just flow down in ultimately into the Darling River. Farmers have been capturing that, and as they capture more and more of it, it flows, it doesn't reach the river and we still haven't got the management of that right, still haven't got the rules in there so we all have to get that properly managed. And then the third one is, I think, which is really important, is committing to what I like to describe as net water use. Whenever someone takes some water and applies it to a crop or whatever they do, some of it leaks into groundwater and then back into the river system again. And we haven't put enough into measuring what's used in net terms rather than what's used in growth terms. They're all easy fixes conceptually, very hard to put in place. Governments love reviews. Uh, What do you you think will come out of the uh, current reviews of the National Water Initiative and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan? Um. I think what will come out is a a high-level thing. Look, basically, the structure is right. Mm. We have have a foundation which is good enough, is actually perfectly designed to build something that will endure and which will will ultimately actually withstand the test of centuries, withstand the test of time. Um, I think there will be, unfortunately, too much focus on detail and not enough on big concepts. I'd be really excited if they picked up on some of the things that I've said are really important, which is building automatic adaptive frameworks um, and focused on that. Um, And also realise that at some stage we need to go back to the system we used to have, which is people had shares and had to manage risk and we didn't have to go on throwing money at this. There's been a massive transfer of money from urban Australia to rural Australia in compensation. When I was first commissioned to look at fixing up the over-allocation problem in the River Murray back in about 2000, my brief from the then Murray-Darling Basin Commission was just to make the adjustment without paying a cent in compensation, just to take the water away from irrigators. And we were working through what that would mean for regional development and economies. Um, Instead, now there's a culture and a mindset that says everything has to be paid for. The golden rule in management of any system really well is is to assign risk and assign it to the people who are best able to, to manage it. And that is the farming community, the people who own water shares and entitlements. Do you agree with people who say Australia has enough water to meet all of its needs but just needs to be better managed? Uh, Yes, we have enough, as I said, to feed ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to think about how to manage that water to create the most wealth. But this is really hard because when I started my career and I'm just about to retire, um, there were 
around about half a million farms in Australia. Now there's something like about 120,000. So in my career, in my lifetime as a, a researcher, we've lost over two-thirds of our farms, but the farmland is still the same and it's much more productive. And so behind this, there's continuous structural adjustment, as it's called, occurring, uh, which has kept the remaining population in rural Australia relatively well off, on global standards, very, very well off. But the adjustment process has been awful and very hard. If you're a person who has to leave a region where all your friends are, then that's very challenging. And water policy is being blamed on that. It's not water policy. It's part of a very important decision that Australia's made is to try and keep its agriculture efficient and keep its um, those people involved in agriculture relatively well off. And on an Australian average, um, there's no clear welfare divide between rural and urban Australia. There's wealth in both sides and a lot of people who are doing very, very well, but there are always people who are having to change what they're doing. That's very, very hard to separate from the water policy debate. And my fear out of all of the inquiries now is going to be too much will be said, look, we can't change water policy anymore because of its impacts on rural people. When we first started the journey from our old, very clumsy, frozen system back in the 1990s to putting in place the system which served us really well um, as we've gone forward, there was a massive increase in wealth. Unbundling, it was recalled, when we put the new water system in place, um, increased the value of water rights in throughout the southern part of the River Murray system 20% per annum on average for a decade. I think the rate of return from owning water rights through that period never went under 15%. To put that in simple terms, every um, five years, the value of your water rights doubled. So in the first decade, there was a fourfold increase in the value of the water rights that people held. That's mm. massive. Mm. Um, and when you're doing reforms... At that scale, people are very supportive. Now we're into the, the fine-tuning when each improvement um, doesn't produce another 20% improvement in value. We're talking about getting the balance right, coping with change, um, arguments over should you have rice and should you have cotton rather than the old ideas. They look, we're using this water to make money, so it should go to whatever crop is best and by the way um, in any highly variable system and the darling system particularly is one of the most variable in the world um, you need to have crops like cotton and rice because you can switch them off when there's no water available mm. if everybody grew grapes avocados oranges um, we'd be in an awful mess because you couldn't give them a guaranteed water supply mm. And I can uh, recall grapes, avocados, oranges, because actually I grew up on the land and I, I swore I would never pick another grape, avocado or orange when I left, which is around Mildura. So um, it brings back those warm... Australia, by the way, I love Mildura. I spent a lot of time there. It bring, but it brings back those warm, fuzzy memories of picking. And let me tell you, as a young bloke that wanted to play cricket for the, you know, for the world side, 
picking avocados, oranges, and grapes really interfered with my batting practice. <laughs> yes, well, but it probably also kept you strong enough to be a good sports person. But, you know, behind that classic example, mm. um, it, when you were doing, probably every single grape was picked by hand. More a dreadful more job. Now, but are, are picked mechanically. Mm. I can remember being up in the cotton industry up around Moree and seeing new cotton picking machines coming in that re- each replaced nine people. Wow. Um, and that's a shock to a community mm. when one machine mm. means that there are nine less jobs in the district. Nine less jobs means behind that nine families and children and all the rest of it. Um, but that's the thing the basin has been lucky to be part of, that we have still relative prosperity. We certainly don't have widespread poverty like you do in much of the rest of the, the, the a rural world, mm-hmm. but that's come about because we've embraced technology, continuously sought new systems. And some of the other new systems that are coming, which are very interesting, are around satellite-based actually monitoring of water use. In the US now, there are irrigation systems that don't have meters because they can measure better using mm. satellites. Mm. I really miss those days, the, uh, the spiders, the snakes, the... Um the 128 degree Fahrenheit temperatures, humidity and rain. And now you've got machines. I mean, they don't know what they're missing out on. Look, uh, but it was always good at the end of the day when you had a beer and you sat back with your friends and said, gee, wasn't, wasn't that great? And you talked about cricket and footy or whatever it was. Um, that was fun. I can remember it too. Mm. And I loved every one of those days. The good old days. Now, speaking of the good old days, the nowadays environment seems to be on the tips of um, every second person or every activist. Do you think environmental activists are too influential in either local, state or federal government today? No, not at all. Um, I think um, lobbyists from all sides and people who engage in activism, um, pro-farming, pro pro the environment, pro lots of other things all have a role to play. The difficult part for people like me is to be seen to be independent and fair and innovative and to keep your distance and not to end up being tarnished as an environmentalist or as a pro-farmer, pro-markets, getting the balance right. We need Mm. to move from simple debates to highly sophisticated discussions that get the structure's right. You know, if you look at a mobile phone, it's behind that there's a very, very complicated set of things that all function incredibly well. I would like a water management system which is as sophisticated and has got as much potential as that, and that requires people who are able to lead. And But they need behind it the environmentalists mm. and the rural communities the um, farming communities all lobbying in their different ways and arguing and trying to influence the debate. But that's a debate about values and about choices. Um, Behind that, there are people who have to make sure the system works really well and often cheap shots are taken where, where people scream at environmentalists and go for the person rather than to talk about the concept and say, wouldn't you have it? Mm. 
What do you think is the best way forward then to guard against severe drought and water shortages? I mean, do we, again, I mean, it's, it was suggested that the Bradfield scheme, uh, dams is another suggestion. What do you think? Um, I'd be surprised if, any, if many more dams add up. Remember, all the water is already flowing, so somewhere. And we've still got dredges in the mouth of the River Murray because we haven't got enough flow going through. So what does a dam do? It captures water that was already going to be captured somebody else. So it's going to change a flow regime, might change a little bit of evaporation. Um, but once again, it's really fine-tuning. And yes, it might facilitate some management of different systems, but very few of them will pass a hard economic test. Um, so I'd be surprised if that happens um, and if it adds up. Mm. So I don't see much case for dams. Um, that's really as far as I could take it. Mm. Uh, changing some dams um, would be interesting. In America, they're talking about taking dams out um, and perhaps as part of a reconfiguration plan, that makes sense. Mm. Um, there's a lot of water, water storages which probably should be decommissioned. Um, I think we're capturing way too much in overland flows and whether or not you, um, in private dams, require, as is done in some parts of the world, to have a pipe that flows out through the dam wall so it always leaks, so there's always a base flow or not, is an interesting debate, or whether in fact you even take some of those private dams out. So I would mix a, a, a discussion with dam building with a discussion around dam removal and ideally some sort of optimization system. Dams are always a great conversation piece at a um, at a barbecue or something, and then especially with a few drinks under under the belt. I mean, it always adds a bit of excitement, doesn't it? It does, and it, there's a lot of emotion, but it's. Uh, when you go through it and you realise that the other thing a dam does is it changes the flow regime. Mm. And every time you change the flow regime, then there's a different role for environmental water managers. Mm. And it, what's happened in Australia, which is another, I think, really exciting innovation, which has really stood out, and that was a decision to give the environment water rights or water entitlements, as I prefer to call them, mm -hmm. um, so that they're active in the water market and, and the environmental water managers now are able to buy and sell water and um, are on a e much more equal standing with our um, irrigators and other water users. Mm. And that started a discussion about getting more environment per drop, so-called environmental water efficiency um, under lots of different banners, but essentially it's trying to get more environmental benefits per mm. drop of environmental water and also getting um, more actually crop efficiency so you get more crop per drop, more environment per drop. Mixing that together, I think, is one of the big innovations Australia has done. But as I said right at the start of this interview, we haven't spent enough time talking about um, hands-off flow or base flows. Mm. And if you live in South Australia and you want to take water for irrigation or for a city like Adelaide, there has to be enough water in the river to carry it through so you can get the water out. So base flow mm. is often thought of as water left for the environment, but is actually 
um, water that's needed by everybody so you can take water out. And that's a separate thing. And I mm. think we'd make a mistake if we continue to call that environmental water. So one of the other big things that we need to do is change the language. So we stop calling all this water just environmental water and have different types of water, base flows, um, minimum flows, um, environmental water shares, and a much more sophisticated discussion. Mm. And then the other bit that probably needs to be thought about, Mike, is the important role of governance and engagement with communities. Um, there's a lot of discussion about getting communities involved, getting Indigenous First Nations people involved much more than they have been, and working out how to do that in a system which can change rapidly is difficult. The state of the art is to have um, a governance structure of normally between six, seven people who are able to make fast, rapid, final decisions. And they have to learn to do that in a way which which is seen to engage with everybody, hear everybody. Mm. And we have a reserve bank in Australia which is able to change the interest rate tomorrow if the need be, and they're empowered to do it. But at the same time, they have to listen to our politicians, listen to the economy, and I stress that, listen to the economy. So a Murray-Darling Basin Authority has to listen to the river and listen to the community and be able to make very rapid decisions sometimes. And that's probably the other weakness that we still haven't got right mm. is mechanism that forces the states who actually run the system to get the detail right and to keep on complying. And a lot of the problems today um, lie with the reluctance of states to keep up with the plan and implement it and particularly to put the necessary reforms in place to get markets right, to get get actually market information mm. right, get um, trading systems um, very, very affordable and much cheaper. It's really interesting. We're talking about water and how it's used to uh, probably basically increase uh, profits for uh, export with our food. Uh, in California, where I, my, my, my first radio station was in the Central Valley of California. And I saw a map the other day. And, Which city? Uh, it's Santa Maria, actually. Santa Maria. Well, I know it. Yes, know it well. Yes, well, actually, it was Lompoc or Lompoc, really. But I, no one, that's this little, in fact, when I was there, it was the uh, flower capital of the US. But um, I always say Santa Maria because it sounds bigger. But the it's the the satellite maps are really interesting. Uh, over the last ten years, basically gone from or maybe fifteen years, really green and lush, and now you can see the transition to just just yellow. They're just running out of water, and uh, we don't want to get into that situation either, do we? No. Uh, in fact, I've spent a lot of time working in California and Nevada, and I'm about to start actually working in Oregon trying to put in place an Australian-style mm. water allocation or, or water sharing system mm. is that um, essentially starts off by saying, look, you've got to set a limit and then you've got to work out how to share and adjust as supplies change. And the really important thing to do is, look, severe long or, or long periods of low flow and low water available will come and will be there. 
we talk, I think, wrongly about increasing drought frequency. I always like the Australian Bureau of actually Meteorology's definition of a drought, which is based around the simple idea that um, you take an average and, and the bottom decile, the 10% of driest years, you can call a drought. But if the system's getting drier, then you still have the same frequency of droughts. It's just, just the whole system has got drier and we need to develop language that doesn't see um, a drier regime as a drought. It's mm. got to be seen as a drier regime. And um, learning to adapt to that and working out which bits of the system you stop irrigating forever um, are the ones you shut off mm. and being able to shut off bits and also increase bits and then change what you grow. We've made big changes in Australia. Um, there are two that I've really noticed. A lot of rice growers are now growing cotton because um, cotton breeders were able to to um, develop a cotton that would grow in southern New South Wales and even through into northern Victoria. And sometimes cotton's been more profitable from rice. So mm. they have swapped from growing rice to growing cotton. Mm. But that's awful if you own a cotton, uh, actually a rice mill. If you own a cotton gin, that's great because mm. you make a lot of money. Um, but dealing with all of those sorts of changes continuously is where we have to go and the way I look at the um, Californian systems, the Nevadan systems, um, is the moment they're frozen, they have very poor functioning markets, no no allocation systems that allow temporary trading, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, of actually regional inequities, but also a lot of wealth. Mm. Uh, um, and I'm hoping that they will be able to develop some of the technologies and ideas that will come back to Australia as we go forward. And heading to Oregon, you're not far from that wonderful state of Washington, which has some of the great wines of the world. So I'm sure as a, a, a learned person, you'll enjoy to uh, enjoy a few glasses of red to really kick in the, uh, the brain cells and, uh, or destroy them, whichever way. How many drinks you have? Uh, so it, actually, there's, a, there's a slight snag at the moment. All the work I'm, I'm actually involved in in Oregon is all by Zoom because I can't travel. Oh, there. you can't, can you? So you'll have to have a virtual drink. Now, it doesn't, doesn't work, does it? Australian wine from the River Murray. <laughs> about. Well, you got, some, you got some lovely areas there. You've got the Barossa Valley. I mean, it's, the, the wine is actually much more palatable than the water, well, of, of my yes. memories anyway. But, but these systems, the big problems there are in groundwater management, mm. not so much surface water management. Mm. And one of the other things that Australia still hasn't got right um, is the connection between ground and surface water systems. And in lots of the, the Murray-Darling, there are reaches of the surface river systems, which are called losing parts of the basin because they lose water from the surface water system into the groundwater system mm -hmm. and then further down there are places where where actually the river gains water um, we put in a lot of our um, dry our salinity um, actually interception schemes to stop um, saline water flowing into the lower parts of the River Murray. Mm. Mm. A lot of those systems are really no longer necessary because we've developed our groundwater and we're managing it all so much better. But 
learning to manage that interface is something that we haven't even started to really talk about at the mm. moment. And uh, it should be adapted once again. Another discussion. Um, uh, when this goes to air, you'll be at the cricket, uh, and I'm sure you'll be seeing a couple of pink balls at that stage. So <laughs> enjoy yourself very much. I'll definitely do that. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope Australia wins. Uh, no running across the ground with a glass of red in the hand and not much else either, by the way. We don't allow that anymore, especially in Adelaide. I know. You have to behave yourself very carefully, and there's going to be probably still um, considerable separation. Um, Australia is lucky. We seem to be managing COVID very, very well. We have. We're a very lucky country. Uh, We're very lucky. And we have so much more more to learn and, and so much more to grow and... I think the uh, the future, provided we keep our heads on our shoulders and don't get too radical, I think, or too 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 lazy, I think our, our future is still looking pretty darn good, isn't it? I think so. And we've got to commit to excellence. If yep. we um, commit to doing everything as best we can and always looking for the new, better ideas, mm. we will remain a prosperous, wealthy, happy, content and environmentally sustainable nation. Mm. What more can you ask? Can't ask for much more except maybe a victory in the cricket and a good red. Mike Young, Professor Mike Young, thank you very much. That's it for Asia Pacific Today, Friday, December 18, 2020. And can you believe it? Christmas is just a week away. Have a great weekend. I'm Mike Ryan.